Welcome to Epiphany Fellowships Podcast. My name is Dr. Eric Mason, lead pastor and founder of Epiphany Fellowship in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. Our desire is to see people everywhere show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can tune in every week to check out new messages. God bless you and take care. Like knowing that you belong to him, that a life of surrender is rooted in the God in whom we stand, who keeps us and seals us, as Paul says, until the day of redemption, so that we might be his for all eternity. That should be a comfort to you that you'll get to be with them, that the salvation that's taking place in you today seals you forever. In him, Paul says, in him. That should be a comfort for us that we we don't have to earn it. We don't have to work for it. It's been given to us freely by a great and awesome God. Amen? Amen and amen. Um, I know Vernon had y'all just sit down, but why don't you stand back up as we prepare to read the word. If we can stand, uh, if you can meet me in Matthew, the 21st chapter. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. If you're there, say amen. If you need some more time, say hold on. Amen. Everybody know where Matthew is. Um, this morning, I'm just going to read it for your hearing. Is that all right? I'm going to follow along with me. Don't check out now. Matthew chapter 21, beginning at verse 1. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples telling them, Go into the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her foal. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them, and they brought the donkey and its foal, and then they laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. And a very large crowd spread their clothes on the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. And then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar, saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. If I could just take a little bit of time today and talk uh, from this theme of Matthew 21, put some respect on his name. Put some respect on his name. Father, we come before you. 
knowing that that question has been posed throughout the ages. Who is this Jesus? Wars have been fought over who this Jesus is. Families have been divided over who this Jesus is. Your word constantly begs the question for us to answer. Jesus even asked him, his disciples himself, who do you say that I am? So Father, we have to wrestle with the truth of what this text says about who Jesus says that he is. And so God, we pray that you would show yourself real today, that you would show your son true today in all of his might and all of his power and all of his glory, because the truth is that every man and every woman and every child is without excuse because you have revealed yourself in the world and in your word. So, Father, may we see you as you see yourself so that we can respond rightly. Teach us, O oh God, this day from your word. Encourage us, challenge us that we might be changed and transformed by it this day, we pray. In Christ Jesus' name, if you agree with that, say amen. 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 You may be seated. Put some respect on his name. Um, growing up, I was, um, I was really into wrestling. And not the real kind, but like the WWF kind. <laughs> Took me a long time to admit that. I mean, I, I'm, I'm talking about like late 80s, early 90s wrestling, like not just Hulk Hogan, that's what everybody know. You know, I'm talking like Brutus the Barber Beefcake. You know, uh, I, I'm talking about, you know, Big John Stud, Dino Bravo. Some of y'all don't even have no clue who I'm talking about right now. I could, I could reel it off. You know, the, the Texas Tornado, the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase. You know, I mean, I could keep going on and on. Uh, the under, somebody shouted, The Undertaker. <laughs> ultimate Warrior, which one? There was a couple Ultimate Warriors. Let's not even get that started. All right, see? Y'all got me off task. But, man, I used to love wrestling. Man, I had all the action figures and all the toys. Um, like, I'm talking about, like, at least 100 of them. All the rings, the little championship belts that went with them. You couldn't even play with my wrestlers unless you knew exactly which moves they did. So if you didn't know what moves they did, you weren't allowed to play with my wrestlers. Like, I was serious about that thing. And I, I, I know y'all are familiar, you know, every once in a while you'll be on Facebook and uh, something will scroll on your newsfeed and it'll say, like, where are they now? Y'all know, know what I'm talking about. And, and if you were intrigued by something, you always click in because you always want to know, well, where are they at? I ain't heard from them in a while. And so recently, one of those, one of those little wrestling things popped up, and it said, man, where, where are they now? And I saw the pictures of all my favorite wrestlers that I used to watch growing up, and so I got intrigued. Man, I want to find out what's going on in their lives. And so I, I, I clicked in there, and to my surprise, I was unknowingly shocked about the tragic end of many of the guys who wrestled and women who wrestled in the 80s and 90s, uh, and, and, and realizing the fact that most of them, almost 75%, if not more, had already died. And we're not talking about like long life type of death. We're talking about 30s, 40s, early 50s, tragically dying. And, and person after person, story after story, 
I'm finding out, man, no, nobody that I watched on the TV growing up is still alive. And as I began to do more investigation, looking into their lives and what happened, some of the tragedies surrounding their deaths, there was a particular thing that continued to come up in almost all of the cases, and it was this, that many of them had great difficulty going from having their names yelled each and every night to obscurity in, in just a second. To go from city to city every night throughout the year and have people scream your name and chant your name, and then the next thing you know, nobody knows who you are. And an instant was so difficult for as many of them to transition into that they started turning to uh, uh, drugs and alcohol. Many of them slipped into depression. Others uh, started just doing eccentric things to, to gain attention uh, for themselves simply because in their minds, who they were in reality was insufficient to who they were in other people's minds. It's simply... The fact that when you don't know who you are, you will do anything to be something for somebody else. But as I look at this text, I'm so glad that Jesus knew exactly who he was. I'm so glad that Jesus didn't perform to people's expectations of him. I'm so glad that that, that Jesus was willing to disappoint people and let people misunderstand him. Because if Jesus' primary concern was what people thought about him, he would have never made it to the cross. Brings me to my first and only point, and then I'll be out your way. If you're going to put some respect on his name, then you need to know you have a responsibility to respond to Jesus based on who he is not who you want him to be. You have a responsibility to respond to him based on who he is, not who you want him to be. Look with me at verse 1. It says that, that when they approached Jerusalem. Now, now we need to stop there because there's, there's a lot going on before we even get into Jerusalem in order to understand the context of this passage. First, we got to understand that, that Jerusalem was the, the city of the great king that was to come. It was the center of uh, Je Jewish religion and, and ceremony and tradition and, and messianic expectation. But even outside of that, we need to know what's happening in the context of this passage by looking at what happened before this and what's going to happen after this. Here's a little side note for your Bible reading and your Bible study. When you're reading through the Gospels, you need to know that many of the passages that you'll read, many of the events that occurred in the life of Jesus have been communicated by other authors like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the, 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 the reason that that's important is because each author had a different purpose for why they were writing the Gospel they were writing which means that they include different information and different clues and facts about what they're observing in relation to what's happening in that time. And so there are other things that Mark mentions, that Luke mentions, that John mentions about Jesus's entry into Jerusalem that help us to get a clearer picture of what's happening. But not only that, we need to know a couple of things because we're going to get into this idea of Jesus coming into Jerusalem and being surrounded by all these people. And we can't just read it without knowing why. So the, the reality is that, that shortly before this, 
Jesus was in Bethany or was outside of Bethany uh, where he raised Lazarus from. Y'all remember Lazarus? He was the brother of of Martha and and Mary, and he got sick one day, and and they called out to Jesus, Jesus, you out here healing all these people you don't know. Are you going to make your way back to Bethany where where your squad is, and you're going to heal your boy that you love? Are you going to do that? And Jesus is like, no, I'm going to wait a couple days, and then I'm going to come. Who does that? But anyway, Jesus shows that that's a whole nother sermon. But Jesus, Jesus eventually makes his way to Bethany so that he can raise Lazarus from the grave for the expressed reason so he can communicate that he's the resurrection and the life. And so the Bible says that as he's there, he raises Lazarus from the grave. And there are many who believe upon his name there in Bethany. But there weren't just many who believed upon his name. There were also Pharisees and Sadducees that wanted to kill him because he was removing the power and authority that they held in the Jewish religious community. And it was shifting to Jesus because of all of the teaching and all of the miracles that were happening uh, during his earthly ministry. And so Jesus had to dip off and go into the wilderness for a little while because the Bible says that he stopped walking amongst the Jews at that point. So now this is important because we've come to a time where the Jewish community is preparing for the Passover, the Passover. It was the, the celebration that they that pointed back to the Old Testament Exodus, where God told them to put blood on the doorposts. And anybody who didn't have blood on the doorpost, the angel of death was going to pass over their house and strike down the firstborn. Y'all remember that story? That's why Pharaoh's son was killed, because there was no blood on the doorpost. The Bible says that so many people were were killed that night that there was wailing in every single home in Egypt and so they get together to celebrate the fact that God had delivered them from this oppression and that was an annual celebration that took place and so now John lets us know that we are six days away from the Passover feast and so there's this excitement that's building among the people because Passover was uh, was linked and connected to the messianic coming of this king who would liberate God's people from the bondage of slavery of the Roman oppression and would uh, and would come in conquering with his military force to take back over God's kingdom. Does that make sense? And so the, 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 the Israelites or the, the Jewish community now is building this excitement during this season where everybody is getting excited, they're getting rowdy, they're, expect, they're waiting with expectation for God to do something crazy over this Passover season. So imagine this Jesus who was just in Bethany that's nearby who raises this man from the dead. And as you travel to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, you encounter Jesus and his disciples and walk alongside of this man who just a few days earlier was dead. And not just that, but as you make your way, you make a pit stop to Jericho. And there are two men who are blind at the side of the road crying out, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stops and heals them of their blindness. Can you imagine the fervor that's happening right now? Can you imagine how palpable the environment is in the air? It would almost feel like like it's about to bubble over with excitement as you watch this man who was just dead walk alongside of you. As you saw Jesus with your own eyes heal men who were once blind. And as you enter into Jerusalem expecting this Passover feast to celebrate the coming of the Messiah, you would say, man, there's something about this Jesus who's making his way into the city of the great king, doing all these miracles of God around the time of the Passover where we're celebrating the expectation of this messianic king man it's got to be something going on can you feel it so when Matthew writes when they approach Jerusalem you got to understand what he's saying 
There is this excitement building among the Jewish community that's walking with Jesus because of the excitement of seeing him do miracles and teach about the good news of the coming kingdom of God. And he makes his way into Jerusalem already as if he's somebody important. The excitement is rising continually, building up and building up and building up. So as they get to Jerusalem, they approach Jerusalem, Jesus sends two of his disciples and he says, y'all go ahead into the village ahead of me. You're going to find a donkey there tied with its colt, with its foal. Just bring it to me. If anybody says something to you, just tell them the Lord needs it. I mean, you got to have some swag. You got to have some swag to go take somebody's stuff and say it like it's yours. Like, go take it. If they say something, just let them know the Lord needs it and they're going to know what I'm talking about. Like, that, that lets you know how much Jesus was dripping with swag. Like, Jesus already knew ahead of time which, which cult and which donkey were going to be tied up where. He gave them specific instructions. Go into the city and look here, and there it's going to be, and then grab it and bring it. Jesus already knew what he was planning to do when he came into Jerusalem. What, what I also love about this is the, is the fact that Jesus understands that his, lord, his lordship gives him the right to make claim to anything in creation. Meaning that the Lord can come and mess up your life and require of you whatever he's allowed you to steward for his own good purposes. Meaning that there's nothing that you have that God can't take back and say, I want to use it right now. So the question we got to ask ourselves when we look at passages like this is, how, how hard am I holding on to things that God wants me to hold loosely for his glory? It, it, would, I, would I have talked back to God if he said, give me that coat? And he said, yeah, but I was going to use it later. And you don't say, man, Lord, it was yours anyway. Jesus here is letting you know there is absolutely no part of your life that I'm not Lord over. It's sort of like when my kids start tripping. And they start walking around the house talking about stuff that belongs to them. And I got to remind them that they haven't paid for anything in that house. That bed don't belong to you. I loaned it to you so you have something to sleep on. Them clothes you're wearing don't belong to you. I just let you wear them so you're not all exposed out here in the streets. That food in that fridge don't belong to you. That's my food. That's why if you leave leftovers in there, I can eat it. That's all Jesus is saying here. You don't own nothing. Everything you have is mine. But it's, it's interesting. We get here and, and, and Jesus tells him to go, to go do that at once. And, and Matthew, Matthew makes a little aside. And he says, he says, this took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Now this is interesting because John, John lets us know that, that at the time this was happening, the disciples were unaware that Jesus was fulfilling prophecy. 
It wasn't until Jesus had been crucified, buried, and then ascended that they looked back and the Holy Spirit gave them insight to understand the things that Jesus had done. And they were able to associate his actions with specific prophecies about what he was fulfilling that proved he was the Messiah. And so here Matthew is letting us know these things that Jesus did, even though we didn't know it at the time, were done to fulfill the prophecies. Which prophecies? I'm glad you asked. Well, he, he's fulfilling prophecies from Zechariah 9.9 and Isaiah 62.11. See, this, this, this is another one of those Bible study methods that you need to make sure that you're keen on is that the New Testament authors who are writing at the time are rooting the majority of their theology in the Old Testament. So why don't we read the Old Testament? If you look through Matthew, look through Mark, John, look through Paul's epistles, and, and see how they root their arguments in Old Testament theology from the Torah. It's impossible for you to understand what this prophecy means in Jesus' time if you don't understand what it meant when it was said. Because what it meant when it was said can't be different than what it means in that day. And we can't use it different than how it was originally said by the prophets. Does that make sense? Here Matthew is letting us know that Jesus is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy and Zechariah and Isaiah, listen to what Zechariah says in Zechariah 9, 9. He says, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, and triumph, uh, shout in triumph, daughter of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then Isaiah says this, it says, look, the Lord has proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Say to daughter Zion, look, your salvation is coming. His reward is with him and his gifts accompany him. Now imagine Jesus riding in on a cult, fulfilling these prophecies. It would have been impossible to know that this is what Jesus was fulfilling and to not see his entrance into Jerusalem as messianic. Because here in the Zechariah passage and in uh, the Isaiah passage, these were known as messianic passages where the, the messianic figure would come and, uh, uh, and, 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 and conquer the enemies of Israel and restore Israel to its rightful place by freeing them from the oppressive nature of those who had them enslaved. And so here the prophets are saying, look, O Israel, look to the day when the Messiah comes to deliver you. Look, your king is coming. Look, salvation is coming. And he's going to be riding on a donkey and on a colt. But notice this. This is interesting. The use of Jesus riding on a donkey meant that he was coming in peace. If Jesus was coming for war, he would have showed up on a horse like he does in Revelations, where he comes ready to conquer all of his enemies, where he comes, the Bible says, with a, a robe dipped in blood and tatted up on his thigh. And the sword will come from his mouth and conquer every person that opposes him. But here, that's not what the text is communicating. It says that he came on a donkey because he comes to bring peace. Right? It says that he comes humbly riding on a donkey because, and, and, and here's the thing. We don't know in all of this excitement 
if the Jewish community really understood what that meant to them, whether or not they were so excited and so convinced that he was going to liberate them from the Romans that they missed the fact that he was riding on a donkey and he came to bring peace. Remember, Jesus even said himself, he said, I came to bring peace. He said, the next time I come, the, the next time I show up on earth, he said, see, see that time I'm bringing war. Like, like that time ain't going to be no lamb slain. That time it's going to be a lion. He said, this time I'm coming peaceably, humbly as a servant. Like he says earlier in chapter 20, so that I can give my life as a ransom for many. But he says in Revelations, I'm coming to take lives of all those who have rejected me and my word. So here it's clear that Jesus is coming in peace and that the people are missing out on this messianic prophecy by not understanding that he's not coming to liberate them physically from the Romans. He's coming to liberate them spiritually from the bondages of sin and death. He's coming to liberate them from the, the, the demands of the law that no man could be justified in their flesh as they try to, uh, uh, to, to succeed in it. Verse 6 says the disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them, and they, they brought the donkey and the foal and laid the clothes on them, and he sat on them. He sat on them as in the clothes, not the, the donkey or the foal. And this was an open declaration by Jesus, pointing to the fact that he was the Davidic Messiah. Which is odd because earlier in this book, throughout this book, Jesus has made a habit of hiding himself. And he's only given sneak peeks to particular individuals. Even though his miracles and his teachings should communicate enough, the disciples often came to Jesus, man, why do you speak in parables? I've spoken in parables so that you might understand the mysteries of the kingdom. But I've also spoken in parables to them so that they won't understand. And then he quotes another Old Testament passage and said, hearing they won't hear and seeing they won't see. And so Jesus here is beginning to unravel himself and uncloak himself by riding in on the donkey and giving a visible expression of what this prophetic utterance was supposed to entail with this Messiah coming in humbly, righteously, in order to save, says that there was a large crowd, the large crowd that was there that accumulated not only because of the miracles he had been doing on his way to Jerusalem, but also because the Passover season was in session and they were preparing uh, to, just as Jesus was, to go down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. But one of the things that we need to know is that, that not everybody in this crowd was for Jesus. This was a mixed multitude crowd. This, this crowd included the 12 disciples and the, and the larger group of followers that, that Jesus had. It included the contingent of believers in Jerusalem who had heard of his ministry, known of his ministry, and believed upon him. It included people who followed Jesus' ministry but weren't disciples. They just liked to be around religious stuff. It also included religious leaders that opposed Jesus and his claim to authority. Can you imagine that? This sea of people behind you and in front of you, praising your name and, and chanting your glory, taking their clothes off and putting it on the floor, 
See, that symbol of taking your clothes off and putting it down in front of Jesus was an act of submission, saying that I acknowledge you as my king. The palm trees were put down as a sign of Jewish nationalism and victory. And so these people were celebrating Jesus because they were having a victory parade. Because they assumed that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem to conquer and take over the Romans. And, and here, Jesus can look out into the crowd and know that not everybody there is with him. That's something you need to know in your own personal life. It's a little nugget. Everybody that's around you ain't with you. It says the crowd began to, to shout. Uh, they began to shout, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who came in the, comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. This is coming from the crowd. Notice here in this passage that Jesus hasn't even talked much. The only thing that Jesus has said was go get my donkey for me and bring it to me. Everybody else is doing things in this passage, but even though Jesus isn't speaking, he's letting it be known who he's saying he is. And so the people start to, to shout and chant Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna and being linked with this title, this messianic title of the son of David makes us clue in on the fact that the people expected him to be the Messiah. It was clear of what their expectations were of Jesus based on how they connected these two words from the passage of Psalm 1, uh, 118, verse 25. And it's interesting, as the shouting is going on, the people are celebrating and, and worshiping. Uh, uh, Mark lets us know that, that the Pharisees say to Jesus, man, are you going to rebuke your disciples or not? Because, again, they didn't think he was the Messiah. And so they're looking at this happening around them, and they're like, man, everybody's blaspheming right now. And so they say, man, Jesus, you better rebuke your disciples so that they know that you know you're not the Messiah. And what does Jesus say to them? He said, man, you can try if you want to. But if they be quiet, these rocks about to shout. Can, can you imagine that? You walk by with Jesus when you should be worshiping him and you refuse to worship and he has to make inanimate objects worship on your behalf? Things that have no life begin, would begin to speak if you didn't open up your mouth and worship when you were supposed to? Can you imagine walking by a boulder and that thing say, Hosanna in the highest? <laughs> but, but, but we, Jesus is communicating. Is he's saying, listen, I'm going to let them worship because I know who I am. I'm going to let them worship because even though they don't fully know what they're talking about, they got it right. I am the Messiah. I am the Hosanna. I am the, the one who's coming on behalf of God in the name of the Lord. They shout Hosanna. But listen what happens. It says in verse 10, it says, when he entered Jerusalem, by the time he gets into Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar. Now, now that, that word doesn't do it justice. The, the, the word that would better describe what's actually taking place here is the word earthquake. There, there, there has been such a commotion stirred because of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. There's so much worship and activity happening around him that it says that the, the whole city shook. 
Because of what was happening, because of the excitement, because of the expectation, because of this thought that Jesus was the Messiah, there was so much disturbed in the city, it felt like an earthquake was taking place. All these people in Jerusalem, probably familiar with Jesus' ministry, but not quite sure who he is, because you remember his, most of his ministry was in Galilee, which is a more a rural, poorer area of the land. The, the Jeru- people in Jerusalem were a little bit more, um, let me, how can I say, high sedity? A little, they, they were a little bit more affluent, and so they really didn't care about what was happening down in Galilee. They didn't care what was happening in Nazareth. And so these people, even though they may have heard of Jesus' name, they're feeling all of this stuff happening in the city, seeing this excitement, seeing this activity, and they ask the question, who is this? Who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Huh? Is that all that Jesus is? I mean, now, 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 they weren't necessarily wrong. But is that all who Jesus is? Is Jesus just a prophet? It's interesting that they call him prophet and they say that he's from Nazareth, even though they're expecting him to be the Messiah. But they don't correlate the fact that the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. And that Jesus was actually from Bethlehem. Now, imagine this. Jesus enters into Jerusalem with all of this fanfare and all of this excitement, all of these people chanting his name and screaming his praises and associating him with the fulfilling of prophecy of the expected Messiah. And five days later, these very same people will be screaming out, crucify him. See, that's what happens when people don't really know who Jesus is. If Jesus is just your prophet, then that means that he can come from God, but not be God. If Jesus is just a man who did good works, then he's somebody you should look up to like Gandhi. But he doesn't require anything from you. If Jesus is just another man, then his death at the cross means absolutely nothing. If Jesus is still in the grave, then that means that we're still dead in our sins. See, they were right about who Jesus was, but they weren't all the way right. And this half picture of who Jesus was left a lot of people confused about his true identity. See, some of us in here might still be a little confused about Jesus' true identity. Some of us in here might not even really know like who Jesus really is because the same thing that's true of the crowd following Jesus to Jerusalem is true oftentimes of those who sit in the very pews of the church. There are some there who are actually followers of Jesus. There are some there who are followers of Jesus but haven't taken their faith seriously. There are other people there that like being around religious things because it makes them feel good inside. And there are other there, others there planted deep inside the church who are actually here for the church's downfall. Which one are you? So Matthew poses this Christological question and almost leaves us at a cliffhanger at the end of this event. Who is this man? I can tell you a little bit 
about them if you have a little bit of time. Moses says that he's a prophet greater than me. Solomon says that he's the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. Isaiah says that he's the wonderful counselor, a mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace. If that didn't get you, then Jeremiah says that he's the righteous branch of David. Some might call him the balm in Gilead. Ezekiel says that he's the shepherd who will lead my people and guide my people. Zechariah says that he's the king over the whole earth, that when he returns, he will stand on the Mount of Olives and it will split from east to west. Peter says that he's the Christ, the son of the living God. Paul says he's the one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. If you ask your neighbor, they might say that he's a way maker. If you turn to your other side, they may say he's a promise keeper. If you look back at your story, you might say he's a healer. If you remember what you didn't have in your bank account last week, you might say he's a provider. When you were in danger and in trouble, you might say he was your protector. When you needed someone to stand on your behalf, you might say he was your lawyer. When you were sick and laid up in the hospital with no hope from the doctors, you might say he was your doctor. You might say that he was your friend that sticks closer than a brother. Truth be told, I don't care what you call him. You just better make sure that you call him Jesus. beauty of this passage is that the triumph or this triumphal entry of Jesus is kind of paradoxical because the triumph didn't happen when Jesus entered Jerusalem. The triumph happened at the cross when sin and death had to let loose on him. The wrath of God was now uh, poured out on him on your behalf and on my behalf. When he was laid in a grave and death could not hold him down because no sin was found in him, nor deceit found in his mouth. The grave had to open up and split in two to open it up so that he could walk out not limping and and wounded, but victorious with all power in his hand. The triumph happened when he ascended to the right hand of the Father and sat down and took his rightful place at the right hand of power next to God. Triumph is gonna happen when he returns. And I'm telling you something right now, come hell or high water, you better know that he's coming back. And he's not coming back to make peace. He's coming back to make war. And if you don't know him before he returns, I'm telling you something now, you better get to know him. You better get to know him. Because the time is running out. Listen, we don't talk a lot about judgment, but the time is coming when he's going to come back and conquer all of his enemies. And I don't feel bad about saying it. If you don't know him now, you better get to know him soon. And you better put some respect on his name because he's coming back. And you're going to have to answer for everything that you've done. And listen, listen to this. If Jesus, who was made to be sin for us, is not standing in your place. When Jesus looks at your record, then you got a lot to answer for. He made him to be sin so that the Father could look at you as if you had never sinned and became a curse for you so that you could become the righteousness of God. John says that because of his death, burial, and resurrection, we have the right, those who believe upon his name, have the right 
to be adopted as sons, fellow heirs, as children of promise. So if you don't know him, if you don't know him, you better get to know him now. I don't say that with arrogance. I don't say that with arrogance. I would never wish it on my worst enemy to face the wrath of God. You better know him. And you better know that you know him. But listen, listen to me. It can't just be for you. You can't just be satisfied that you know him. What about your family members? What about your friends? What about the people who have never heard the name Jesus before? He's coming back. Peter says that he's delaying his wrath, delaying his return so that more people might come to the knowledge of his son. You better know him. Because when he returns, every knee is going to bow. And it doesn't matter if you do it on your own accord or not. Every knee is going to bow. Whether he got to force you down, every knee is going to bow. Whether you believed him or not, whether you thought he was just a good prophet, whether you thought he was just a wise teacher, Bible says everybody's going to confess that he's Lord. And nobody's going to have an excuse. Ain't no makeup work and extra credit. The day he returns, it's too late. You better put some respect on his name. Father, we're thankful for your word. God, we take your word seriously. The revelation of who Jesus is is a big deal. Because all our hope rests in him. Paul writes that if Jesus was not God, if he was not crucified, if there was no resurrection, then we would be most pitied among men. And so when we read of this revelation of Jesus, this expression, this visible expression of him making himself clear to the world of who he says he is, we must take notice. But we also must put others on notice that there was one who came He came humbly in a poor, run-down city called Bethlehem to a virgin who had never been touched by a man. He was a carpenter, but that's not all he was. For the Bible says that In all of his life, he never sinned, but fulfilled the requirements of the law on our behalf. 
he became the Passover lamb for us so that his blood could be wiped on our hearts so that the wrath of God would pass over us on that day. And so God, we pray, Lord, if there's anyone in here under the sound of my voice that has heard this and is still unsure of who Jesus is, that you would make it clear to them, O oh God. And that you would challenge us that do know you, God, to take you seriously. To take your word seriously. And to take your message seriously as we go out into the world. Time is running short. And God, I sense as the people of God, we don't have the sense of urgency that we need to have. So that while there is still time, many more might believe upon your name. Sober us, O oh God. Sober us, O oh God, this day. So that we can rejoice in seeing people that we know and people that we don't know go from death to life. From darkness to light. Transferring from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your wonderful son. God, we pray all of these things in the matchless name, the mighty name of Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. Let our man come. Thank you for tuning in to today's message. I hope that it was a blessing to you and it was aiding in your life to help you to show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. If this message has been a blessing to you, we want you to consider partnering with us in ministry so that we can maximize what God has called us to do locally, nationally, and internationally. You can go to epiphanyfellowship.org, go under give and consider donating. Thank you. Take care. See you next week.